Welcome to the Inspiring Leadership podcast series. This is aimed for you aspiring leaders, whatever level you're at, whether you're beginning out in your careers as managers and leaders, whether you're in middle ranking roles, or whether you're CEOs and chairman of boards, there's always something we can all learn. And it's particularly the skills, stories, tips and techniques that you can pass on to those you lead and your teams. Hello, I'm Jonathan Bowman-Perks and welcome to my favourite time of the week. And I am delighted to have Will Hogg. And Will is the MD and founder of Kinetic Consulting. Uh, he also was Senior HR Director of Procter & Gamble and also seven years as a light infantry officer in the British Army. And Will and I connected about a month ago, I think, Will. And I just found the guy absolutely fascinating. He's got some great stories. He is an inspirational leader of others, a trainer and developer of other people, always has been. I just found a real connection with him and I wanted him on the Inspiring Leadership Series. So Will, welcome, great to have you. Thank you very much, thank you. So we'll perhaps, we'll begin with, you know you, your current role, what you what you're doing. You got a, you got a sizable consulting that you've built up. I think about fifty people, if I remember. Mm-hmm. And um, the kind of work you're doing with different organisations that'd be interesting to hear about. And then your your journey to get you get you to this point. So, so firstly, tell us about what you're doing now. Super. Thanks a lot. Um, so so what I'm doing today, and you, you've said the the bare numbers of it. So we're about fifty people. Grew from one to two to seven to fifty. However, that happens. Uh, and we, we work in, we broadly call it strategy consulting. Uh, and there's really three disciplines around that. One is corporate strategy, everything from analyzing the situation to developing the strategy to using some storytelling techniques to, to make sure everyone gets it. The second we, we call strategy enabling. And it's broadly around having functional areas of expertise that can take the corporate strategy into action. So whether that's HR or marketing or sales or whatever. And then the third, which you know, it's my secret favorite, is our leadership capability building part, which really draws from both, and you've talked about it, my corporate and my military experience. Brilliant. Yeah. And, and, then, and then how did you get here from right at the beginning, young lad, and, and what was the journey? Tell us a bit about your life story and, and the lessons you learned on the way and who influenced you. So really for me, there's, there's kind of, three catalysts or influences that have got me to where I am today. Uh, one you said was, was Procter & Gamble. And what's wonderful about Procter & Gamble is it's, it's, it's a great school. It's a corporation that is built on the principle of build from within. I'm not saying it's the best, but what it does do and what it does do is it creates a context in which people just have to coach people because there's this belief that, that the leaders are going to be someone who reports to you today. So, so I think that really instilled a particular corporate logic for me. And, and as far as corporates go, and I know this can sound naive, but as far as corporates go, it's pretty good in terms of having a very clear purpose and values and principles. And so, again, in the corporate context, that was very much instilled in me. The second influence is one we share, uh, which is the British Army uh, and Sandhurst and all that goes with that. And, and I guess... You know, what would I say about that? I would say it's the, the principles of servant leadership and, and again, being values-based and really thinking from the front line backwards in terms of any logic that you could have would be my second great influence. 
And then the, the, the third thing I'd say, the big catalyst and the reason that I started my own company in the first place was because uh, my father died age 61 uh, without any warning, uh, which suddenly made me realize that, that I needed to have an impact on the world quickly uh, in case the same would happen to me. And so I, I very quickly thought around, well, how can I take these two amazing influences that I'm very grateful for and turn them into to something that's more in line with my own purpose? Right. No, and I'm really sorry about the loss of your father. I, I mean, just now that you and I are sort of approaching that age, it's, it sort of it brings things home to you and you go, wow, yeah. what, what, what actually happened? Uh, his aorta burst. So I literally got a call. I was, I was shaving on, and about to go to my daughter's nativity play. She was four. And I got a call from mum saying, dad's dead. So it was, it was that stark and, and, and sudden. I just can't imagine. That must have had a profound, I mean, not only profound as in you deciding that you've got to get on with things and, you know, don't sweat the small stuff, really, that, you know, put things in proportion. But uh, just, do you ever get over that kind of thing? It's a really good question. I, I, I mean, I know you, a bit of your life experience, so I know that you, you will have your own answers to this. Uh, mine would be yes and no. Uh, yes, in the sense of fairly quickly, I find myself functional again uh, in, in stages. And, and even by the time I was at dad's funeral and, and seeing how many people were there, able to see the silver lining to what was a very dark cloud in terms of, wow, you know, maybe, maybe I haven't spent enough time thinking about how many people come to my funeral and, and already starting to think functionally and more positively about it. Um, but I guess the real shocker for me was one year after, five years after, 10 years after, 12 years after, was this awareness that when somebody dies, it's, it's ridiculous because it's so obvious, but it hit me, it continues to hit me, that you never see them again. So, so you don't miss somebody with an end. That, that, I guess, is the learning that, at least in my experience so far, you don't get over. Yeah. And did you have the chance to say a few words at his, at his funeral or was it other people speaking? Other people speaking, so I didn't have the courage at the time. I might make a different choice now, but but if you, if you were to to say two or three qualities that you admired about your father, what what would it be? Um, he was very grounded, uh, meaning you know, he had a temper, he, you know, he, <laughs> but in general, he he was a very solid influence. He was one of those, at least for me, he was one of those people that you feel very safe around. Uh, the, the second was he, he, although he could be very opinionated, I generally think it was without judgment. So, so I think he was able to really understand different perspectives, even if they were irritating him. He still had an, an, an ability to understand and not prejudge. Uh, and, uh, and I guess probably based on those two qualities, I, 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 again, maybe people would say I'm wrong, but my feeling is the thing he was most successful at was, was it being a great salesperson. And it's probably based on those qualities. You're very charming. Yeah. Yeah. And, and maybe without realizing subliminally, you, you learned ways of being from him. I'm not talking about the temper. I'm talking more about you do have an easy manner with people. People say you've got humanity and humility and a sense of fun. But you, you also are genuinely interested in people, which sounds like he was. And, and he also was a light infantry officer like you. Tell us that story of the connection, what he did and where he served. Yeah. So uh, he, 
I, I grew up with this awareness of being in the army. So I, I knew I wanted to be in the army as of seven years old when I had a funny little uniform in, in Hong Kong. Uh, and, and so he was, he was in Aden. Uh, he was in Northern Ireland quite a few times. He was in Germany, he was in Hong Kong. And uh, yeah, it was, it, was, it was kind of fun. It was exciting as a small boy to grow up and, and, and see your dad in the army, kind of hero worship. You know? Yeah, well, what, you, but you, what, what a pair you had with father and mother, di different personalities. I mean, I was just hearing you tell that after father, your father died, that mum cycled, was it from Bristol to Morocco? Yeah, absolutely. Which is a phenomenal one. Now she's working <laughs> in refugee camps in uh, uh, helping other people out. Tell us more about her. Yeah, so mum is a, a very strong character uh, and in the most positive sense, very, very driven. Uh, and she she's done some amazing work. I, I became aware of mum being different when we moved to Saudi Arabia and she, she by dictaphone was learning Arabic and and absolutely determined to, to get out there and, and not be imprisoned in compound life. And so she got out there, she learned Arabic, she, she used that to interview people. She, she wrote articles as a journalist in the Saudi Gazette that she'd gained through her Arabic skills. Uh, she then went and I, maybe I've got the order wrong, but I don't think so. She, she went into education of, of girls in the Yemen and then did some work in India and then for quite a long time in Malawi. So, so very inspiring to see her just getting out and doing it with a, an immense amount of courage. I think we need mum on the series, don't you? But I think it's a great idea. <laughs> I'll volunteer. I think, I think she'd be a hoot. Would you, seriously, would you put us in touch? I, I'd, love, I'd love to have her on the series. Because um, it isn't, it, it's, it's who you are, it's character. Character's a really important part. And, and you were mentioning other influences on your life. What were the other influences on your life? Yeah, I, I was thinking about this beyond the sort of the, the, the organizational influences. Um, I, I'm, I'm always attracted by strong leaders who have strong principles. And, and initially, I was, as I reflect on my career, I, I've often started with a fairly stormy relationship with them uh, and, and then found my way into, into really learning from them. And probably my best example is somebody who he was my boss at PNG for eight years, uh, and now we're business partners. Uh, so effectively, we've been working together for twenty years. He's Dutch. Uh, uh, he will tell you he's Dutch, and because he's Dutch, he's direct. And uh, and I've just really from him learned the quality of what he calls tough love. Uh, in, in terms of there's always a good intent, and he's absolutely not afraid of being direct in in terms of giving direction or living his values and principles. Mm. And what, what else about him? What, have you, what else do you learn from him? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, probably the most profound lesson uh, was already 15 years ago. And we were, we were going around the, the world as you do. This was when we were in Procter & Gamble. He was the president of a business unit. I was his HR leader. And so we were traveling around the world together. And we went to a region which was... It was, in a, it was a very difficult business situation. It was already, we were in the middle of a huge acquisition um, and it was a particularly difficult region. And I knew that, 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 that he had some impatience and, and desire to get to the bottom of things and turn them around. And, and so I was watching how he did it. And I remember particularly sitting in one meeting 
where we sat there and for five or six hours, all he did was ask questions without, again, without judgment, with a very calm demeanor, really listening to understand, really listening to understand and just occasionally writing some notes down and, and, and really creating a context in which people could speak. And then at the end, gave a you know, succinct summary and absolute, as I've already said, very direct clarity on what needed to happen. But I remember just sitting there watching him and I really admired his ability to, to properly listen and to properly delve into the issues and to properly build and, and, and hear what people were saying. Uh, so it's a skill that, that I've tried to emulate. And every time I consult and I catch myself getting impatient, I remember that moment and try and and kind of recenter back into that skill. Well, you were talking with me earlier before we uh, we went on air uh, about your tip you'd give to your eighteen-year-old self and someone who's influenced you in the papers recently. Do you want to say a bit more about that because that was profound for me as well? Yeah. So, so the the advice that I would give is is what I just said, which is 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 listen, really with the intent to understand. And I was I was touched by an article that I read recently and I found out now that you know the author, uh, Nancy Klein. And, and I just, I read this article all about the, the negative power and, and in, in fact the violence of interruption. And, and I think she, she used the word assault. And it, it really appealed to me because, because I thought not because I think I'm great at it. You know, I, I often catch myself interrupting and then I'm quite angry with myself, which is not a great cycle. But I do believe passionately in the power of listening and, and not interrupting. Uh, and, and what I loved about her article was I'd never thought about the power of that in terms of not just one-to-one -one relationships, but the power that has more generally in society if we learn to listen and not interrupt. Mm. It's... I think it's the biggest uh, lesson I'm trying to personally learn. And um, we're always seeking psychological safety. You don't get it when people are assaulting your thinking. And th this whole idea that she talks about of really encouraging independent thinking, completely independent thinking in the other, and being curious about how far they can go in their thinking before you'll interrupt them with your thinking, and then how much further than that they could go before you interrupt them. And then, difficult for an extrovert like me, how much further than that they can go in their thinking before you interrupt. And it, it's really made me constantly revisit my whole approach of coaching or consulting or advising. And that really the, the healthiest, if you have to give them anything back, is, is to share your own experience and share information, but don't start advising. Because as soon as you do, they close down. They're not listening. I can't hear you. And I have to relearn that almost on a daily basis. What about, what's your thoughts? Well, my, my first thought is a mischievous one, which is we've just got us, we, we set ourselves up a trap now because if we interrupt <laughs> each other one time in this, in, in the context of this webcast, we're violating the principle. So I was laughing about that. Yeah. Um, uh, the, the, those are my thoughts, absolutely. And, and it's my biggest challenge as a business leader. You know, I just, I recently did a 360 where I got some great feedback. And if I had to distill it to one point, it's that one. It's just get better and better and better 
as, as a leader in asking questions to try and tease out the truth uh, and to try and tease out the, the way forward rather than offer an opinion. Yeah. And that was a revelation to me because I do try and I think generally succeed in doing it as a consultant. But the irony is I hadn't necessarily thought about it as a leader of my own team. Yeah, really interesting. And uh, I like the work of Oscar Trimboli, who he wrote a small little book called Deep Listening, uh, Impact Beyond Words. And he's a coach like yourself and myself. And the five levels of listening that he talked about, listening to yourself and, and clearing out the stuff that you've got before you have a conversation about, you know, how do I want them to feel at the end of our interaction? What is the purpose? All those kind of good, what's going on in your own head to, to listen to that, then listening for the content, then the context, those are the next two levels. But the, the, I find the great life hack is that is listening for the unsaid. And that, that lovely question, what is it you haven't told me yet or you haven't said yet? And yet allows them to save face by they haven't been deceiving you and holding back. They, they just haven't got around to telling you yet. And I find that provides amazing information and then finally listening for meaning I'm not sure uh, how, how you've come across that before or what thoughts you have about those five levels of listening yeah I guess the the fourth is in particularly again in consulting the fourth one's a really important one because as a consultant you you can go in with you know here's my model here are my steps uh, this is how I'm going to do what we call the situational assessment so asking questions to understand the context but it's often that question that what haven't you said yet, or sometimes I phrase it as what haven't I yet asked you? Or what do you wish I'd asked you that I hadn't? Or what else do you want to tell me? All of these types of questions, they, they're generally, not generally, is that true? They are often the questions that, that yield incredible insight. So. Mm -hmm. you, you've triggered in me. What, what's the question you don't want me to ask you? <laughs> I'll tell you when we've switched off. But the people always tell you, don't ask me this question. So I go, can I ask you this question? Oh, no, don't ask me that one. <laughs> um, okay, so so in your life journey, and, and tell us more as you go along, because I'm sure you've got some fabulous stories, but what, what about the proudest moments in your life and the, the darkest moments and what you learned from, from both? Yeah. So proudest, I guess it's a series of moments, whereas darkest, there's a specific. Um, so, so proudest is, is, is when I see anybody in Kinetic having a positive impact. So when I see somebody in the Kinetic team uh, bringing somebody else on, when I see somebody in the Kinetic team who has coached a, a client such that the client is then in the lead, when I see a member of the Kinetic team doing something that has social impact, all of these moments just make me feel incredibly proud. Um, and, and the pride comes, I, I hope not from a kind of ego of, you know, this wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for me, uh, but more from, wow, isn't it, isn't it great that we've created this platform that, that is having this impact? So, so those are my proudest moments. Mm. Uh, so, you know, what would I draw from it? I, I guess it goes back to the story of, of if, if we think that my father's death set this whole thing in motion, if you've got a vision, go for it, would be, I guess, the learning from that, because 12 years later, I'm saying, well, thank goodness I did. Um, the darkest moment is actually a very specific one, and it's kind of funny, I guess. 
But when I was a young officer, uh, we were we were out on an exercise in Canada, which you're probably familiar with. It was a month on the prairie in Canada. And we were in the middle of an exercise. Uh, I'll try and put this in non-military speak. And uh, so, so I had three people reporting to me and each of them in charge of eight people. And two of them with their teams of eight people had done their thing. Uh, and then the third one was a little bit slow, or at least a little bit slow for my liking. So I, I could see what I thought they should do and they weren't doing. So I just grabbed people around me and, and, and did it for them. Uh, so took over the task basically. And at the end of it, my boss gave me all sorts of praise. You know, he told me that was great, amazing decision-making, uh, great initiative, good job, well done. So I walked back to, to, to my platoon, so my, my group of 30, feeling top of the world, you know, war hero, whatever. <laughs> And my platoon sergeant, so my number two, said to me, you better go and speak to, his name was Corporal McKenna, you better go and speak to him, uh, though he was one of, one of the team leaders, because uh, he's angry. And, and I couldn't work out why, until I turned up and he said, uh, I'll put it in politer words than he used, he said, boss, you made me look a total idiot there. I waited with my team for four hours to do a task and then you decided you'd do it for me. You've made me look a total idiot. And I walked back to my vehicle and I was in despair. It was, it was truly a dark, dark leadership moment. And, you know, for someone listening to this story, it may not sound it, but to me, it felt like all of everything that I wanted to be as a leader had collapsed, I felt. I felt really bad and I sat there in, 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 in despair uh, all night just thinking, how could I so badly have, have, have made that leadership error? And, and what, I'd say, what I'd like to say I learned from it is not to pace it, is just to slow down enough and think about the broader context before acting. I say I'd like to learn it because I tell you still that one of my leadership weaknesses is I still have this, this desire to jump in. And, and when I do it too quickly and take away somebody else's freedom of action, I, I feel just as bad, which is probably why that event resonates so much. Yeah, yeah, it, it resonates for me. Um, I, I think as a, as a company commander again in Canada, um, with the, the Green Howards this time in, in warrior armored fighting vehicles and and, I, and I, I thought I was so great, but actually I was not that great at all. And um, tried to, to try to do too much myself rather than empowering and trusting people and catching them doing things right. I was too critical um, been brought up in this very judgmental way and at, attached to praise and recognition and, and status and it looking back, I, I cringe. It, it was not admirable at all. And, um, but, but you learn, uh, hopefully, or, or you carry on repeating it and, and don't. Um, what was it? Someone said 50, 20 years in the military. Was it, was it 20 years of experience or was it one year lived 20 times? <laughs> With no, no learning made of the experience. Yeah. Okay, uh, fantastic. And then um, thinking about, um, I, I'm interested in what makes inspiring leaders and um, the elements of, of how people become high performing. 
One of the key ones that we've talked about, you and I, is, is moral quotient, MQ. And, and, you know, what gives your life meaning, purpose, character, virtue in stoic terms. Uh, what does that all mean to you living by your principles and your values and your integrity? And, and, and perhaps if you have any stories of, of when you let it slip and mm -hmm. you weren't living according to your values. Yeah, I, I, can I break that question into two parts? One is the, the, the moral part, and one is the inspiring leader part. So because the, the, the moral part I can answer quite quickly because I guess I've already implied it a little bit in terms of I, I think my highest value is, is to understand people. Um, I was exercising this morning and I was listening to uh, Francis Assisi's prayer and, and, and with that, it's, it's whether, whether it has religious connotation or not, it's less important to me. It's more the principles of, of seeking to understand before being understood, etc. It just uh, it resonated deeply, and so whenever I violate that, I I, I just feel awful, you know, I, because I know I'm my worst self. I know that I lost control. I know that I'm getting myself into into a win lose context, uh, or in a and and again, it's 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 exactly what it says. It's win lose. Therefore, it's it's everybody loses. So that's kind of my my big moral view, if you like. Um, the specific of being an inspiring leader, that's another one that, that I wanted to pick up on, particularly because, as you and I learned, uh, you know, we, we were taught that to, to be an inspiring leader, you had to balance the task, the team, and the individual. And I kind of half understood that when we were taught. You know, I, I think I understand it better now, but at the time I, I didn't really get it. I mean, I, I understood it conceptually, but it, it didn't help me to act. But then when I went to P&G, Procter & Gamble, they have a leadership model, which is similar, but I think it's a whole lot better because it explains the impact you want to have on people you lead. So they call it the three E model. So it's envision, energize, and then enable execution. So suddenly with that in mind, I understood what inspiring leadership is. It's to give people a vision. It's to catch them by the hearts so they can execute. And then it's to, to help them execute, to enable them to, to not get in their way, per my story, my, my army story. Um, and I guess I learned two things from that. One is, if you want to be an inspiring leader, you really have to think about the impact that you want to have on people and work backwards from that, rather than try and attack it conceptually, as I think task to human individuals is a concept. And the second was, is, is the power of visualizing. Because again, for me, envision, energize, enable, I can, I can visualize what that looks like as a leader, whereas I can't visualize task, team, and individual. Well, maybe others can, I can't. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I certainly get that. And a number of things have gone through my mind as you were talking. One is, for example, you talk about long after they've died, you think many times about your father. I was just then suddenly as you were talking, um, I thought of my mother and, and, and I won't tell her story today, but she's very like your mother and with a big philanthropic element to what she did, even if it was as a little boy, a bit shocking seeing your mother going out there and having the courage to be different. But um, I think this thing about living our values and, and what we will and won't do, 
every day you have to gird your loins. And she also, the reason I think you triggered it in me was she, she loved St. Francis of, uh, uh, Francis of Assisi's prayers and, and would often quote them. Um, and I think had it on the wall in our downstairs, very cold loo in our house in Halifax. And uh, I, I still remember looking at it each day. And it, at the time, it doesn't make sense. And, and like a dare's three balls, it makes much sense as what you've just described. And then that leads us nicely onto the, the next of the components that I'm always interested in, which is PQ, purpose quotient, or even spiritual intelligence, uh, without the need for religious connotations. But it's, for some people, it does. And you know, having a faith is always helpful. But what gives your life meaning and purpose? You know, why do you do? what you do uh, and what is you know your dharma your calling your vocation i'd be interested in in that thank you yeah i, I i've got a, a what and a how answer to that question uh, so, so the what is very clear to me it's it's that by support and by example i i want those who matter most to me to be able to leave their unique fingerprints on the world so I'm very clear what that means. So, so for, for my children, for my partner, for my colleagues, I, I, I write down every year what, what my intent is behind that, and that's what drives me. And when I feel great, as per <clears throat> what I said to you about the impact of my team, when I feel great, it's because I can see that I'm living my purpose imperfectly, but it's happening. When I feel bad, it's when I realize that I'm, I'm devoting energy and attention to something which is off that purpose. So that, that's the what that guides me. The how is, is something you've touched on already, which is that I kind of laugh when I, when I say it, but my how is I always think at my funeral, I, I would love it if people would say he was always principle-based. A lot of the time, you know, he's a pain in the ass. In fact, you know, most of the time he's a pain in the ass, but he did live his principles. And, and that's, that's kind of my, those, those are, those are the, the, twin, the twin lights for me that, that keep me on track or not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think uh, the, the, the hardest critics are, are probably our own children. You know, you've got, you got your two children, 17 and 11. Yeah. Uh, mine are 26 and 27, two daughters, and, and I've got my stepchildren on. And I think, you know, they haven't read my book, Inspired Leadership. You know, they, yeah, okay, Danny, whatever. You know, and, and they go, yeah, you talk about these things, but you haven't always followed them. And I go, no, I, I haven't. And I, it's always a work in progress. You know, I, I constantly aspire to, to be inspiring, aspire, aspiring to be inspiring. Um, but if I'm not, just to reflect on it. But yet, equally, I, I used to beat myself up a lot about, about things. And I don't think that's particularly helpful. Um, I, I think you've got to learn from it, but I, I don't know what your thoughts are on, on learning from our mistakes and, and, and when we slip. Yeah, 100%. I, uh, well, first, I, I just want to totally endorse what you say. I've, I've learned um, this concept of the second arrow, you know, the, the first arrow being your mistake and the second arrow being that you punish yourself for your mistake. And then it's, it's, a, it's a kind of continual spiral downwards. So I, I do try and remember that. And as you said, though, it's of course a balance because then you don't want to become so resilient and so hardened that you don't draw the lesson. Yeah. So, so for me, it's a, a continual, yeah, I, I watch myself, I, I catch myself out. Maybe sometimes I even laugh at myself for being a bit of a dick, but, but, uh, but, but better that way than to go into a sort of spiral of self-recrimination. Yeah, yeah. I think laughing at ourselves is very healthy. 
uh, and thinking of health, you were talking about training this morning and uh, you know, as I was doing as well, you, you seem to keep yourself uh, very healthy. Health and well-being, I know, is an important topic to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and many leadership models leave out the health and well-being aspect, but yet I find it a, a crucial component. So what I call health quotient HQ. Um, what have what have you done to keep yourself healthy and encourage others to be healthy and, and look after particularly mental health, which during this this global pandemic is getting such a hammering and will continue to in the recession that comes in the coming years? Yeah. Well. I mean, first of all, as context, I was I was very lucky uh, in that. I mean, I was unlucky in that I had a big tumor in my head, and I was very lucky that I survived it and and, and came out absolutely fine. And very lucky in the sense that it it was an amazing wake up call, aged forty six, uh, to 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 suddenly think, <laughs> you know, Dad died age sixty one. I might not even make it that far, um, and. What was good about that was was it it was it was humbling because again probably like you I, I think of myself as a fairly resilient character but but you can overdo that and and what I realized was that by being focused on my purpose and, and focused on this is what I want to achieve and this is how how I'm going to do it but not thinking about am I maintaining the engine that's going to deliver that purpose I was about to drive myself into a wall and and I say lucky because. I, it happens to other people in other ways. You know, some people it's a burnout. Some people it's a heart attack. Some people it's whatever. For me, once the tumor was out, it was a it was a relatively benign wake up call. If you understand what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. And then from that wake up call, uh, yeah, it's made me much more attentive to: Am I resting? Uh, am I am I recovering by by doing stuff that's not work? Am I maintaining relationships enough? Uh, am I reading enough? Am I eating the right food? You know, I'm, I'm not a saint, so so it's it's never perfect, but I'm trying. You know, am I exercising most days? So so I've been pretty good at keeping that in front of me, and not because I'm great, but because, as I said, I, I was lucky enough to have that reminder, which is is one you don't forget quickly. Yeah, that that was that was really quite a shocker to have about what three years ago, brain tumor. Correct, exactly. Uh, I mean, just. Uh, a real wake-up call. One of uh, my wife's clients, she was a CEO, and, and she had a, a number of tumors on her brain, and they related it all back to the stress and the cortisol that she was putting herself under. Uh, and I had a bit of a wake-up call about it a year and a half ago with a, a cancer scare, a prostate scare, and I had the, all the all the biopsies and everything else. But I was okay. But during that time, read a lot around health and well-being. Um, marvelous book called how not to die <laughs> which is a great read and and that made me for about a year ago vegan and i'm not vegan now i'm more flexitarian but i i eat far healthier as a result of having that wake-up call and funny enough i'll have to declare it on air now i'm now in in week two of being um, dry uh, not that i was an alcoholic um but I'm, I'm completely dry now and I'm, I'm aiming for a year. I'll see how I do. But each day you take it, I say, no, I won't drink alcohol today um, because I just want to be healthier and in, in better shape. And um, I, I do find it interesting. Um, food Fix is another book, which is well worth reading about the environmental impact of big food and big agriculture and particularly drinking your sugar like Coke and things like that. And the, 
horrendous impact it has on the environment, far worse than planes and cars and trains. And it's, it's a, definitely a, a, a thing worth reading. So I think the whole thing about our health, but we can't expect anybody else to do it unless you and I and other leaders go there first. Uh, I'm not sure what your thought is on anything about that health and your well-being. 100%. Uh, with one of our clients, we're, we're lucky enough that we can go there. So, so we, it's a leadership training. And then in the context of the crisis, we, we've got into agility and resilience and what that means. And in that context, we've been able to get into, you know, as a leader, that notion that you said it, as a leader, you, you, it's not just a good idea. You have the responsibility to maintain your engine, firstly, because it makes you a more effective leader, which is your responsibility. But secondly, because you then give other people permission to do the same. So, so I'm a, a very strong believer in that and, and, and I love actually being able to be able to work through that with people rather than playing just at the superficial, what's the task element of leadership. Yeah, I, I do think it gives us a certain amount of humility and also connection when we've gone out and done it ourselves. And, and I'm reminded again about Nancy Klein and she was telling a story in, in one of her books, Time to Think, More Time to Think or The Promise about how a headmaster, she, she came in and it was a discussion about teaching English or something. And uh, there'd been something gone quite, not quite right. And, and the headmaster said these profound things. Said, Remember Nancy, they're learning you. <laughs> they're, they're not learning about the things you're teaching. They're learning you, how you're behaving. And she said when she was 27, she had ovarian cancer and they gave her six months to live. And uh, she's now 74, so something must have happened. Wow. What she did was that in those days, her then her first husband uh, went out and researched, but there was no internet, had got as much as he could and found out about the foods and the exercise and the sleep uh, and surrounding yourself with people who are positive, you know, the radiators, not the drains. Yeah. And, and if people couldn't be positive with her, would they not come and see her? <laughs> and of the 27 friends, only eight could, so only eight came to see her. The, the others, they just said, please don't come. Um, she's, she's in, she's, she's trying to get through this. And she did, clearly, she did live and she's a remarkable woman. But I, I think it was deeply moving for me that, that sometimes people have to have a death call to wake up and that we sleepwalk through life. Uh, and I think I've, I've always been quite uh, focused on health and well-being. but it's funny, I was thinking about why did I used to drink alcohol? Because I've never enjoyed it. I was in the army. Come on, be a man, have a pint, drink, you know, with the Duke of Wellington's regiment, age 16, trying to get through four pints and feeling mildly <laughs> ill later on. And I thought, why am I doing this? I'm doing it because they want me to drink. I don't want to drink. But I went through until the age of 58, where I've actually, for the first time, like both my brothers actually have given up alcohol, interesting enough. Um, one who's a surgeon and, and kept getting bottles of whiskey because he'd done great operations on people. And he's given up for about the last four years. And then my brother, Dave, who was a drug addict and tried every drug known to man. And he knew that he was, had an addictive personality that if, if he tried something, he couldn't stop himself. So he just didn't even begin. You know, when you, well, when you don't want to slip up, don't go somewhere slippery. So he just doesn't. <laughs> yeah. I, I, so it is interesting that I've often tried to please others and do things for them or to fit in. Well, you don't need to. What, what do I wonder? I think as you get older, you get less tolerant of trying to suck up and please people. And I spent much of my military career trying to 
please senior officers or whatever, and, and less so now. Yeah. I, I don't know what your experience has been. Yeah, no, I love that. And, and I, I think that can, what I see is that that can play out two ways. It, it can either be a negative, you know, screw you, I'm, I'm going to do my own thing, I'm independent, you know, or it can be a purpose-driven, no, it, it's, it's less confrontational, but it's more because I have this purpose, this is the path I'm following and I'm only going to live once and, and therefore I'm not going to be diverted from my path because you have a different agenda. Yeah. And, and I think one is very attractive and inspiring and, and one is somewhat lesser. Yeah, and you've reminded me that, and I mustn't become a sort of um, a pain about it, you know, like for example, <laughs> my wife Lee, she, she likes a glass of wine and fine, you know, have it. I'm not going to start being like a, a, a non-smoker who's going, ah, you know, leave. Uh, my, my late mother-in-law who tragically died on the 28th of August this year, um, she had cancer, she had heart disease, she had lung disease, she, she had Alzheimer's. Uh, she carried on smoking to the, almost the bitter end, even though she knew it was what was killing her. But uh, she said, it's anal cancer. I don't smoke out of my ass. I said, no, no, no great. It's, it's actually, it doesn't kind of work that way. But she was such a character and I still remember her very fondly. Um, let's go on to IQ, the, the, the fourth of the components about, you know, not only just wisdom and judgment, but the decision-making you have and, and who you have around you to help you, advise you and coach you and mentor you. What, what, uh, you know, who's your coach? Because, um, you know, you're coaching, advising others. Uh, I have my own coach, a guy called Oliver Johnson, who's a good friend. We do Time to Think together, Nancy Klein style. But, but it, who's helped you over the years? Who's given you wisdom? Yeah. The simple answer is lots of people. Um, so so I've, I've spoken about the, <clears throat> my most present one, uh, who's been present for 20 years. So his name is Robert. And, and I... I literally look up to him, um, not in the sense, in case he's listening, of, of saying, thinking that everything he says is perfect, uh, but in the sense of, of trusting his wisdom and, and, and principles and desire to do the right thing and to, to, to help me to do so as well. So, so he's always been there for the last 20 years professionally. For me, though, there's, 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 I could name another list of people. Uh, we've talked about my parents, both of whom have very strong influence and, and others. For me, those, it's more a principle, which is, I remember, I think it was probably six years ago, I went through uh, one of these assessments. I guess we all do hundreds of them. And it was an assessment with a company that selects CEOs. And one of the things that they told me was, your decision making is not very good. And, and to begin with, I was pretty affronted. You know, I, My whole life, I've been told I'm decisive and people like it etc and then I thought about it and I thought you know what it's true every time I've made a decision on my own particularly I'm more talking professional decisions I guess it's it's not been great whereas whereas if I've had the ability to to go and engage with other people and get them to push back on my thinking of course it's always better and and so again it can sound like a statement of the obvious but but i really really learned when i'm hitting a big decision to really ask myself am i capable of making this on my own i know i think i want to but i'm probably about to do the wrong thing so why don't i go and 
And the more wrong I am, I realize the more, the more resistant I am to going and asking other people's opinion because I know they're going to tell me I'm wrong. And, and so I've learned to kind of spot that uh, and, and deliberately go and, and frankly seek the confrontation because it's going to put me back on the right path. That is so interesting. You've triggered in me. I haven't really said this to anybody, so here we are on there. Um, when I was an army officer for 20 years, um, I, I thought I was God's gift, you know, going to Santa as an instructor. Then I had, as we shared the story, got, got an average report, and, and that was why I met all the people who knew my father and so on, and, and learned about my father and the inspiration he was, because I wasn't doing well, so I, I became a better leader. But even so, I, I couldn't understand why I didn't get promoted to Lieutenant Colonel at the first age and the second age, second year and the third year, even though I'd come out in the top 10% from staff college, I was supposed to be special. And look back now, I got, you know, uh, I asked for the data about my reports and things, stuff that I hadn't seen, that they hadn't released to me at the time. And I saw that one or two senior officers who I don't even remember meeting had said that they questioned my judgment, which was death as an army officer, if your judgment was questioned. And I was really hurt by that, but like you were saying in your case, but when I look back, I, I was an okay officer. I wasn't great. My, many of my peers at Starcross, they were really talented and natural at it. I had to work so hard at it. But doing this, this is my dharma, my calling, being with leaders like you and studying so much, even though dyslexic, I did the dyslexic test the other day and found I am definitely dyslexic, really badly so. Um, but I listen to audiobooks. That's way, my way of, you know, 60 audiobooks a year, probably learning that way. So actually now my judgment, I think without being immodest is I get told my judgment and my wisdom is very good, but then it wasn't because I didn't really know my profession like they did. It was like, yeah. they just had it in their fingertips. It was, but for me, I was having to work so hard at it and didn't get it. And but like, you know, Adair's three balls didn't make sense to me. I was, I was learning it by rote, but not by by heart. Um, so there we are. That's a, that's you got me. You see, you got, you got me talking about my my weakest, bluntest moments of of my earlier career. Let's go on to emotional intelligence, which you certainly have shown already on this uh, interview. How much you have, but how did you learn about emotional and social intelligence using your emotions intelligently? Uh, and, and what happened when you haven't got it right and when you have got it right. That's really interesting. Um, I guess, you know, like a sort of the, the rough diamond part of it probably happened because I, I have four siblings. So I, I grew up in a family of six. And I think if you grow up in a family of six and we're a great family, extrovert family, you, you knock edges off each other. So I, I think there are some fundamentals of EQ that you, you, you learn in that context. Um, but more negatively, uh, I think like you, uh, I have a preference for extroversion. I can be, I can be quite extrovert. And in my twenties, particularly, I, I would so often get in trouble for things I said, I would, I would, you know, I'd say something inappropriate or I'd say something that I thought was a, a sort of side comment and it wasn't a side comment and it would be heard and I'd be confronted. And, and, and I just, I, I can't tell you how many times I had that sinking feeling of why did I say that? Mm. You know? And, and I just think, I don't, I don't know what age, but let's say thirties where I just suddenly thought, I, I, 
I probably don't want to go through life having this feeling. It's a terrible feeling. So better I just shut my mouth for just a few more seconds and ask, do I really want to say that? And so, so I, I guess I, I learned that the hard way. And then later, you know, I, I read, read a bit more about EQ and read some of Daniel Goleman's work, et cetera. And it suddenly became clear, you know, this whole difference between responding and reacting. And, and, and that, that, that the hard lesson that I'd learned empirically suddenly made sense to me theoretically in terms of, yeah, you know, it, it, it's, it's not about, it's, it's truly not rocket science. It's just learning to keep your mouth shut for a few more seconds and asking yourself, what's the impact you want to have when you reopen it? Uh, that's, that's probably been my biggest lesson, and unless I still get it wrong, but definitely less than when I was in my 20s. Yeah, I, I, so, I so resonate with that, and my journey was very similar, but in, in different experiences. And, and that's also given you amount of RQ, resilience, against adversity, setbacks. You know, uh, there you were, you know, training in Canada. It's not easy. It, it's hard, and it's... Yeah. Army training for seven years is deliberately puts you under pressure and you need to be resilient even to get in. And certainly in a fine regiment like the light infantry, which your father was in as well, you, you had to be resilient. You were put through constant ordeals. But but even in, in a top corporation like PNG and also what you're doing out on the hills, you know, training young people in, in, in kinetic consulting, there's a lot of resilience needed all the time. Where did you learn about it? And, and was there any lessons of when you weren't resilient, which, uh, resilient, which has helped you be able to cope with adversity more? We talked about the Stoics and things like that. Just interested in your experience. Yeah. So I, I suppose the first reflection I have is that, that for me, at least, resilience is something that's cumulative. You know, I can do this because I did that, and I could do that because I did that. So, so to, to bring that to life, uh, and I, I said it on another podcast recently, actually, that the, the crisis that we're all in now, I'm finding it kind of familiar, the feeling of, of crisis and needing to be resilient in it. And it's familiar because it's what I felt like three years ago when I was in hospital trying to recover from the, the operation. And then when I was in hospital trying to recover from the operation, it, the feelings I had there were familiar because I remembered those feelings when I was ultra running in the mountains. And when I was ultra running in the mountains, the feelings were familiar because I remembered them from army exercise and, and, and. So, so, so for me, the core of resilience, just resilience, is this sense of I've done it before. I know it's going to pass. Uh, I know that actually I'm pretty good when, when adversity hits and it just gives you the confidence to then be more resilient. So for me, it's become a, a virtuous cycle. Now, you know, I, I also have an awareness that there's a limit for all of us, so I, I hope not to meet it. Um, the, the other point though is I do genuinely of course genuinely I, I believe in the power of purpose to, to overcome adversity so you know I, I, did, I saw it in a study when I was new in PNG in terms of people having burnout because their level of stress was higher than their level of purpose and without doubt the most stressful thing I've ever done is, is trying to leave my own company for 12 years. But because I have a very clear purpose, when you have the inevitable setbacks, when, when, when you have the inevitable need to pick yourself up and get moving again, it, it's so much easier because I know why I'm doing it. And I, I, I have this sense of purpose and therefore I'm willing to face each day 
not not face each day with a sense of grind, but actually face each day with joy, even though I know it's going to be a tough one. Mm. No, that that's resonated on many levels. What one is this thing about cortisol and stress levels and. I hadn't had it put that way, but it makes complete sense that if your level of purpose is greater than your level of stress, you, you will survive and get through it. Uh, and the other one is this thing about leaders and followers and leaders should remember that, that if you have positional power and you're with someone more junior, when you talk to them and meet with them, your level of cortisol stress goes down, but theirs goes up. And uh, because of your positional power, um, and not, to, not under, to underestimate that impact of just the power difference. Um, uh, just the last couple of uh, thoughts would really uh, love to hear about sort of your brand firstly, and then we'll talk about legacy at the end. But, but your brand, your reputation, your image, your impact, what, um, what, what have you learned? You talked recently about a 360 that you did. What have you learned from feedback from others? And, and how have you developed yourself based upon how others perceive you? Because, of course, your, your brand, BQ, is what people say about you when you're not in the room. <laughs> you don't often hear that unless you hear it through your own coach or 360 tools. What, what have you learned from that? Yeah, I, I think that there's, I, I can answer that two ways. There's a sense of, of what I feel like I've built and, and added to my toolkit over the years. And then there's what you said about the <laughs> repeating the same year 20 times. Um, I, I can also report that sense in terms of the, the downsides of my brand. Um, <clears throat> so the, I think what's always been there, when I was at Procter & Gamble, we, we, there were nine success drivers and I constantly had the same three strengths. Uh, one was thinks and acts decisively, which comes back to, to what I said. Um, with its caveat. <laughs> One was leads uh, and, and specifically around the sense of being able to come up with a vision, energizing people and, and, and getting them to, to go. And the third was operating with discipline. So I guess that's, that's always been the, 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 my sort of core of, of where I, where I you know, the strengths I've lent on. I, I, when I did one recently, um, all of those came back again, but the thing that, that touched me the most uh, was that the, a new one came in, which was people saying that you, you're a, a very values-driven leader and, and driven by your principles. And I was really touched by it because it's precisely what I'd want my brand to be. Uh, and you don't know. As you said, you don't know what people say when you leave the room. So it's kind of nice to learn that they do say that. You, you try, but you don't know. Um, and the other one... I wrote, I wrote a summary of, of, of my report and someone came back to me and said, no, 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 you, you missed what for me is the most important point, which was that you listen with curiosity and empathy. Uh, and, and again, I was really touched because I don't, uh, and there's no false modesty here, I don't necessarily consider myself good at it, but I do know that I really try hard at it. So it, it felt good. Conversely, on the other side, uh, there, were, there were a few things that, that so my inability or my weakness, whatever you want to call it, in, in delegation constantly comes back. So this, this same person who was the, the young officer in Canada who wanted to just take over and get it done, it's, it's so much in my DNA uh, that, that I continually have to work against it. Uh, and, and people in, in, in Kinetic kind of who know kind of laugh at me doing so because it's fairly obvious that I'm trying. Um, and the other one is, it can seem strange, but 
there's a, there's a sense in which I'm conflict averse. So I'm not conflict averse in ideas. I, I love to uh, debate ideas all day long, but I'm conflict averse when it comes to giving someone the really tough feedback. And, and I, I get to it too late because I frankly hate the disharmony that it brings. It, it, it causes me physical stress. So, so another thing that I continually struggle with as a leader is learning to be appropriate, appropriately good at conflict. Yeah. Uh, time and again in the, all the leaders that I coach and the teams I work with, um, having courageous conversations, difficult conversations, coping with conflict is, is a major problem for us all. Yeah. I, I, I find the same too. Now, we just stepped over a wonderful little comment you made earlier, and I won't let you get away with it, which was so interesting. We had an ultra marathon runner on here and I'm getting a series of explorers and head cases who do, you know, diving deep in the ocean bed and things like this and go up Everest there through, through another guy we mentioned, Sandy Loader. He's introducing me to a whole load. And Sandy's coming on the series as well. Um, one of the guys I had did the arc to the arch from the uh, marble arch to the Arc de Triomphe. Uh, so that the run to the coast, the swim, the channel, the cycle to the Arc de Triomphe. But you've done some endurance events. I'd just love to hear briefly about what you've done and what you learned from that. Yeah, um, so I've, I've done uh, probably five or six. I mean, I've probably done 20 marathons, but I've done five or six ultra marathons. Um, so the longest one was uh, 170 kilometers and climbing eight and a half thousand meters through the Alps. Um, I could have used that actually when you asked me what was my darkest moment um, because you, you you think you can cope with sleep deprivation, etc. having been in the army and then this is a new level. And it's interesting. I still don't quite know what happened, but but on my second morning without sleep or 10, I had 10 minutes sleep on the second night, I had this terrible feeling for about an hour where it was, it was just as the, 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 the day was dawning, where everything just felt black. Everything felt black. I, 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 I had only hate for myself. I just, I, I was telling myself, you're the worst human on the planet. You're a hypocrite. It, it, and it was really, it was really humbling for me because I'm generally positive and optimistic. So, so I, I have less compassion than I should for people who, who struggle with, with depression, et cetera, and anxiety. Not, not because I, I want to have less compassion, but I realize I don't have the empathy or the, the experience of what they have. So I have to work out what it means. And it, it's a, maybe a superficial example, but for that one hour, I understood what it felt like to be really low. And it, was, it, it hit me in the face. No, I think never underestimate the, the mental health challenges people have. I've gone through um, mental health challenges and felt suicidal a number of times in, in difficult circumstances, but working my way through that. Um, and, and I think you, you can't see it in people. You think they look fine. You yeah. just don't know. And, and I was always so sad about uh, uh, the, the comedian, I've forgotten his name. Um, Robin Williams. Robin Williams. I just always thought he was just such a fun, happy guy. And there he was, took his own life. So, so sad. Um, before I, I do the last one, which is legacy, um, what is it you haven't told us that it's worth sharing? I don't know what it is. So I'm just asking the genuine question. Hmm. It's an interesting one. 
Well, you told me that, um, that one of the things you said was that you might ask me about my favorite book, and I actually couldn't think of it. Uh, so instead, I just wanted to tell you that, that I love storytelling, and I, I love the power of storytelling. I love the, I, I, and, you know, the, the drama that we all know of, of, of the hero and, and a challenge and, and overcoming the challenge and the lesson. But the reason I love it is quite profound, which is I, I, I use it in strategy. I use it in capability building. I use it in everything because I believe that storytelling and, and the sort of the, the storytelling arch is, is, is a metaphor for how we live life. Uh, and, and therefore the whole concept of storytelling really appeals to me. Yeah. Yeah. I, I really get that. And particularly uh, the, the hero's journey. Correct. Uh, what did it go? The, Ordinary world, call to adventure, refusal of the call, meeting the mentor, crossing the threshold, test, allies, enemies, approach, the ordeal, the death, the rebirth, the reward, seizing the sword, the road back, the resurrection, and return with elixir. I have it on my wall. I was hoping so, otherwise you've got an amazing memory. <laughs> I know, I can't, can't confess to that. But um, finally, uh, and, and Will, I've really enjoyed... Uh, you sharing all these things on, on the series. And I do think we have, we have looked at the challenge we've given ourselves. We haven't spoken over each other. So until now, um, but no, in, in your final thought, what would you like your legacy to be, LQ, your, your legacy in your personal life, maybe with your family um, and in the, the work that you do for other people? What would you like to, to have as your legacy? Thank you. Uh I mean, in one sense, in one sense, I've said it in terms of my purpose being to, to help people to leave their unique fingerprints. But in terms of legacy, very specifically, uh, what I would like is that, that those I touch would say that I helped them find something they didn't know that they had in them. Uh, so, so just as you hear me talking about my parents and, and, and hopefully honoring what they gave me, the thought that I could pass that on to my kids and the people I love and my colleagues and, and, and have unearthed that gem for them or enabled them to unearth the gem, as better said, is, is, is what drives me. Well, Will Hogg, MD and founder of Kinetic Consulting, thank you very much indeed. It's been a great honor having you on the series and I'm, I know others will take a lot from it as, as I have myself. So, Will, thank you very much. Thank you, I really enjoyed it a lot. So now you've heard from one of the inspiring leaders that I've interviewed, what are you going to do next? If you want to get some more free material, go to my website, jonathanperks.com or follow me on LinkedIn, Jonathan Bowman Perks. And there you can get access to my books, uh, Inspiring Leadership and Top Tips for Inspiring Leaders. But if you want to actually do something about being a leader and constantly improving your game, raising your performance, Get in touch with me about coaching you or one of your team that you want to raise the game for them. It's got to be people who want to be good to great, not people who you're trying to fire. And if you're looking for a motivational speaker, get in touch. Or if you want me to work with your team coach, I would be delighted to help you.